On this week's Big Tech Show, when will cars safely drive themselves on our streets? And who in Ireland is providing the technology to help them do that? We talk to one of the country's biggest automotive autonomy entrepreneurs. I have BMW Drive Assist in my own vehicle and it is much, much safer because we are all prone to distraction, especially when we're on the motorway from Limerick to Dublin, for example. We've all been there where you actually forgot a whole section of the road. So I would say if you take it from a safety perspective and it does allow you to kind of relax. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. The following podcast contains distressing content and is not suitable for children. Her last words to Mark were, hold on, I'm going for help. She couldn't find a mobile phone. The landline had been taken from the house as well. And as she left the house, she realised that there was a large padlock had been put on the gate across the yard, meaning that she couldn't use a car to go and get help. And this terminally ill lady realised that the only way she was going to be able to raise the alarm was by running across the fields to a neighbour's house. She skirted the farmyard and she used ditches and fields as cover as she tried to make her way about the kilometre distance to her neighbour's house, the Cronins. She kept looking back behind her to see was she being followed as she used the ditches to try and stay low. And eventually this very ill lady managed to get to the Cronins and raise the alarm and tell about the awful events that had just happened in her family home. Gardaí based at Cantor County Cork were alerted to a critical firearms incident at the townland of Asseles, Cantor County Cork, that occurred shortly after 6.30am. In October 2020, 26-year-old Mark O'Sullivan was found dead in his family home in North Cork. Members of the emergency response unit approached the house and sadly the body of a male in his 20s with a gunshot wound was discovered in a bedroom. Mark had been murdered by his father Tyg and his brother Dermid. His mother had witnessed the early morning attack and had escaped to seek help. Neighbour Anne Cronin, who raised the alarm after Mrs O'Sullivan arrived at their door in a distressed state, said she kept repeating that they had told her they would leave a trail of destruction and there would be no light in Raheen again. I'm Denise Kalman and you're listening to In Focus, the current affairs podcast from independent.ie. This week on In Focus, a family torn apart by a bitter land dispute. In February 2020, a terminal cancer diagnosis would change everything by putting a 115-acre farm valued at 2 million euros front and centre in a bitter inheritance row. It would prompt a tragedy that would ultimately result in the entire family being wiped out. Irish Independent, Southern correspondent Ralph Regal has been following this story since the beginning. Ralph, can you tell us what happened? Yeah, Anne, Anne and uh, Marco Sullivan had been out of the farmhouse in Raheen for two weeks um, because of the tensions over the inheritance and the will involving the 115-acre farm. But the decision was made to go home on Sunday, the 25th of October, and it was mostly Anne's decision. It was her ancestral home. It was the, the farmhouse and the farm that her parents had farmed, and she wanted to go home. Now, Mark was very protective of his mother. 
he was hesitant about going home. In actual fact, the, the, one of the evidence, uh, one of the witness evidence um, statements in the inquest said that Mark was actually crying, leaving the home of the neighbours about two miles away to return to Raheem. But he was determined to go with his mother. He was determined to protect her. So they left that house around 3 p.m. on Sunday, October the 25th. They did some shopping in a local little in Kenturk. And then they drove in Mark's car back to Raheem and they arrived around five o'clock-ish. Now, the house was empty when they arrived. The farmyard gate was unlocked, which Anne afterwards said she thought was a little bit unusual. And about 10 or 15 minutes after they had arrived, they were unpacking the car. Dermot, her youngest son, and Tyke, her husband, arrived back together. Instantly, Anne noticed that there was a tension in the air because Dearman had said to her, look, I'll ask how you are, how are things, but that's as far as it goes. Uh, Tyg interrupted him at that point and said, look, you know, you've said too much. And because of the tension, within a short space of time, the family had split into two units. Uh, Tyg went with Dearman. Uh, Mark went with his mother into another part of the house. They lit the stove and they settled down for the evening. Now, unknownst to uh, Anne and Mark, Tyg and Dearman had left the property in their car. Anne was unable afterwards to remember precisely what time that happened at, but they did leave the property in Tyg's car. Of course, Anne was in the middle of treatment for terminal cancer at this time, so she got quite tired at around eight o'clock at night and she decided to go to bed. Uh, she understood that Mark was maybe watching a bit of television and the indications are that he then went to bed as well. Anne got up during the night. She had no idea what time Tyg and Dearman had returned to the property, but she said she got up. She noticed that the television was still on in the parlour come kitchen. And Dearmid was asleep on the couch. So she turned off the television. She said she wasn't sure if Dearmid was awake. If he was, he didn't acknowledge her. So she presumed he was still asleep. And then she returned to her bedroom. At six o'clock in the morning, she heard the sounds of movement outside. Now, this would have been six o'clock on Monday, October the 26th. She thought it was unusual because it was a bank holiday Monday. And she thought that no one had worked that day. So everyone would basically start getting up slightly later in the morning. But she took no notice of it. And then shortly before 7 a.m., she was awoken by a noise. Now, she said she struggled afterwards to describe what that noise was. But she now realizes that it was the sound of a gunshot. So she put her slippers on. She put her bathrobe on and she went to where she had heard the sound emanating from, which was, of course, in the direction of Mark's bedroom, Mark being her older son. And when she came out into the hallway, she was greeted by this horrific sight of her husband and her younger son, both armed with rifles and both staring into the bedroom. When she came out into the hallway and they realized that she was there, they fired another volley of shots into the bedroom. She went to get a mobile phone to try and raise the alarm. The mobile phone was taken off her by her younger son, Dermot, and Dermot turned to her. At the time, Anne couldn't remember what he said, but afterwards she recalled th that he had turned and said, there's your solicitor's letter for you. Now she was desperate to raise the alarm. She was searching for a phone in the house. She couldn't find them. They'd obviously been taken. She decided then that she would get to her car and drive to raise the alarm. Before she left the house, she looked into the bedroom and was greeted by this awful sight of her eldest son had come out of the bed, stumbled out of the bed. 
He was half seated, half lying on the floor between the bed and the nightside stand. The duvet cover was partly caught in his legs and essentially he was quite blood soaked and unresponsive. She said to him, hold on, Mark, I'm going for help. When she went to go for help, she realized outside the property that there was a new heavy padlock had been put on the gate across the farmyard entrance, which meant that no car could drive out. So in panic, she realized that she had no option but to try and raise the alarm on foot. So she went out into a small garden by the side of the house and then traced her way around the house and intending to use ditches and fields to shield herself from her husband and her younger son. Of course, at this stage, she didn't know were they going to follow her or were they going to chase her? And her last glimpse of them was of the two of them in the farmyard or the courtyard of the farm. Dermot was crouched on the ground, smashing something, which we now know to be a mobile phone, her mobile phone. And Tig, her husband, was armed with a rifle and he was pacing back and forth across the farmyard. Farm yard. That was the last time she saw the two of them. And this poor lady, who, of course, was suffering from terminal cancer, then had to run and stumble for almost half a mile, close to a kilometre, across fields and ditches to go to the neighbouring farmhouse, which was the Cronin's, to raise the alarm. That was just after 7am. And when she arrived at the Cronin's and she was explaining the awful events of what she had just witnessed, the Cronin's heard what they thought was a further shot emanating from Raheen, which would have been, the, the, of course, the O'Sullivan family home. Uh, the Gardaí were alerted. The Gardaí were at the scene within minutes. And they, because there was firearms involved, they had placed a double cordon around the house and brought armed Gardaí and a negotiator to the scene. So when Anne arrived at the Cronin's farmhouse, she was very distraught. And she explained that what uh, Dermot and Tig had just done to Mark. And in a very poignant moment, she, she turned to the Cronin's and she said, they, they'd done what they'd done to make me suffer. So the Gardaí were at the scene within minutes and the body of Mark was discovered in his bedroom. He was pronounced dead at the scene. Now, it later emerged that a total of eight shots had been fired from .22 caliber rifles in the bedroom. Seven of those shots had struck Mark and he suffered fatal injuries to the head. Uh, one of the bullets actually going, causing a traumatic brain injury. Again, very upsetting. Mark had desperately tried to defend himself so he had raised his arms to protect himself from the, the shots being fired at him. And some of the rounds had gone through his arms and entered his chest, causing damage to his liver and to his lungs. Now, there was an extensive search of the lands in Raheem conducted by the Gardaí. And later in the morning, the Garda air support unit had spotted what they thought were bodies in a field about 600, 700 metres from the farmhouse and actually very close to a ferry. Uh, fort, the field being known as the fort to locals. Guard Air Support Unit helicopter commenced an aerial search of the adjoining lands and at approximately 1.40pm two further bodies, a male in his 50s and another in his 20s were discovered. A number of firearms have been seized at the scene and a full criminal investigation is underway. And both Tig and Dermid were pronounced dead at the scene in the field. Both had suffered single gunshot wounds to the head and in evidence to the inquest, uh, we heard that it's believed that Dermid took his own life first, followed by Tig, his father.
Ralph, what is the background to this tragedy and what exactly sparked this series of events? I think everything changed for the O'Sullivan family on February the 28th, 2020, when Anne O'Sullivan was given a diagnosis of terminal cancer. Up until that point, I think they'd been pretty much your typical Irish farming family. Um, They worked very hard. They had ambitions, both in terms of education and in terms of the holding. Anne was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2012. She successfully fought it, very much supported by her husband and her sons. But in 2019, she didn't feel well. She went for medical advice, tests, and unfortunately, on February the 28th, she was informed that she had terminal cancer. And almost inexplicably, that seemed to change the whole dynamic within the family. Within a couple of weeks, her husband was pressing her to make a will. Quite coldly, he told his wife at one point, get your affairs in order. She said relationships in the house had deteriorated significantly following her diagnosis, with demands from her younger son and her husband for her to leave most of her family farm to Dermid. But she wanted to divide it equally between both sons and had instructed her solicitor to do so. About the same time, her younger son Dermid asked to talk to her on his own. And when they were on their own, he explained to her that he had a vision, as the phrase he used, for Raheem. And he said that while he might spend the rest of his life in debt because of it, he had hopes to develop Raheem. He felt that the farm was static. Uh, it wasn't moving forward. It wasn't progressing. And he essentially wanted the lion's share of the, the 115-acre property. And this was despite the fact that it was already known within the family that Dermid was going to inherit the land that his father had inherited at Cecilstown. So Anne wanted to be fair, scrupulously fair, to both brothers. So she had wanted to split the farm evenly between them. But this wasn't acceptable to Dermid. And when Dermid didn't get an immediate concession to what he wanted, the atmosphere within the family home began to deteriorate. Tig took Dermid's side. And incredibly, when Dermid didn't get his own way immediately, Dermid began to get quite agitated, escalating to the point where Dermid said that if he didn't get his own way with what he wanted with the property, that he would take his own life. And he was supported in that by his father. And his father said that if Dermid took his own life, that he would consider taking his own life and that his wife would be following two coffins to a local cemetery. Mark and Dermid went for a walk one evening where Dermid pressed Mark about his view for the farm. And Mark was desperately trying to, I think, calm tensions within the family to protect his mother and also to avoid some of the worst excesses of what his father and younger brother were threatening. And later, Mark said he stupidly agreed to what Dermot was proposing simply to try and calm tensions within the family. Later, his mother approached him and said, are you happy with this agreement? And Mark admitted to her that he wasn't. And during a later conversation within the family, when Anne was outlining that she had tweaked the will, that she had it slightly changed, Dermot really got very angry and agitated. He accused uh, his older brother of being a snake and a rat. Um, He got very upset and irate. His father supported him in this. At one point, Anne was confronted in her bedroom by her husband and by her younger son and was left feeling very frightened by the aggressive and agitated manner in which they were speaking to her. Now, things continued to deteriorate over the summer. 
when Dermot wasn't getting his own way. And really, it, it, it went beyond the point of no return uh, around October the 11th. Now, on October the 11th, um, Tyg and Dermot confronted a neighbour on the laneway to their property and were quite Dearman was quite agitated about what was going to happen and he passed one particular phrase where he said that the lights would go out in Raheen forever. Now the neighbour was alarmed, thought that this was a definite threat and brought it to the attention of Mark and to Anne. Now that was on October the 11th. On October the 12th Anne had a medical appointment and she didn't want her husband to bring her to that because she just wasn't happy, wasn't comfortable. She went to the medical appointment with a friend and they came back to the house that day to collect some personal things and went to stay with a neighbor. So they were actually out of the family home for two weeks and things were so tense at this point that Mark returned to the property to take his college his college certificates, his um, university roles, because he was afraid that his father and younger brother would deface them. That's how bad the tensions were in the property. He was confiding in two very close friends, Clara and Sharmila, about the deterioration in the relationship within the family. And both of those were very alarmed when they heard about the events of October the 11th. Mrs O'Sullivan's cousin, Louise Sherlock, had pleaded with them both not to return home. She told how Dermot had told her it would be all over in a couple of weeks and that there would be a road of carnage. Both of them urged Mark to leave the property with his mother, not to go back and that they both viewed the comments passed by Dermid as a threat, possibly even a murder threat. Mark himself was so concerned about how bad things had gone within the family home that before they left, he would sleep at the foot of his mother's bed at night, both to protect her and to protect himself. And in one very stark revelation at the inquest, it emerged that Mark had confided in one of his friends that he believed his father and younger brother might murder him and try and make it look like a suicide. So he urged his friend to retain all communications between them to show that communications to the guardie if he was ever found dead. Ralph, can you tell us a little bit about the family dynamics in the O'Sullivan household? Yeah, they were up until um, February the 28th, uh, 2020. They were very much a a normal Irish family. They worked very hard. They took great pride in in their education. They took great, great pride in the family holding that they had. But really after that, it diverged. And Dermid seemed to be the one that was driving the fragmentation. And Dermid had very big ambitions for the Raheen holding. He felt it was static. He felt it wasn't developing. And he wanted his own way. And what seems quite bizarre is that he was backed in all of this by his father. Now, Dermid and Tyg had grown very, very close. Um, Dermid loved the outdoors. Tyg loved the outdoors. Um, they were cutting timber a lot of the time together. They were doing jobs out around the farmyard. Mark was doing that for quite a number of years, but over latter times, he seems to have taken on more of a protective role of his mother, that Mark was absolutely devastated when his mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Mark at one point told a friend that when his mother said that she had terminal cancer, um, his brother Dermid smirked or smiled and Mark was devastated. So Mark was doing the cooking and the cleaning and the shopping in the house to ease the burden on his mother. 
He was also working remotely, which meant that he was on a laptop a lot of the time in the Raheen farmhouse. And Dermot couldn't understand any of this. Dermot was quite derogatory towards his brother, accusing him of being lazy, not pulling his weight around the yard, not doing jobs outside. And his father very much took his side. I mean, Tyg passed quite cutting comments about his eldest son, about that he was lazy. He, at one point, even started passing comments about his weight. And when Dermot was threatening to take his own life, if he didn't get his own way over the inheritance, um, Tyg turned to his oldest son and said, you know, if if Dermot dies, you're going to be the cause of his death. So it really was a normal family up until February the 28th, 2020. And after that point, it split into two halves. You had Mark and Anne both trying to protect each other. And you had Tyg and Dermot with Dermot very much driving the agenda on the basis that he wanted the lion's share of the inheritance. He wanted his brother to get the home house, the farm courtyard, and a few boggy fields, and that he would get everything else. And when Gardaí were faced with investigating this tragedy, Ralph, they, the investigation centred around three letters discovered in the wake of the tragedy at the farm. Yeah, very much so. I mean, the guard investigation was critically assisted by witness statements, by forensics and by ballistic ballistic evidence, and particularly in respect of the 2.22 rifles that were recovered. But they really got an insight into the awful tragedy and the apparent planning of the tragedy from letters that were recovered. Now, when the bodies of Tyg and Dermid were recovered 600, 700 metres from the farmhouse in a field near this fairy fort, there were letters, handwritten letters, were recovered on both of those bodies. Now, those letters were not read out during the inquest, but what is apparent is that at least one of the letters was written several days before Mark and Anne had arrived back to the property on the evening of October the 25th. There was a letter, a two-page letter was found in the pharmacy bag or the medicines bag of Anne O'Sullivan after the tragedy. Now, this letter was unsigned, but forensic analysis indicated that it was written by Mark. And that really painted a heartbreaking picture of a young man desperately trying to protect his mother, desperately trying to ease tensions within the family home while putting on paper his fears for his own safety and fears for his mother's safety. And one of the most poignant lines in that letter is where he said that his beloved family home at Raheen was no longer a safe haven and that he feared for his own safety. And what was apparent from those letters particularly the letters that were recovered from Dermot and Tyg, was that while Mark and Anne had hoped for some type of reconciliation, uh, particularly on the basis of a reply to a solicitor's letter that Anne had issued, and they returned to the family home on October the 25th, hoping that things might be resolved, it actually transpired that Dermot and Tyg had plans for this tragedy before Mark and Anne had ever returned home. A verdict of unlawful killing was returned into the death of Mark O'Sullivan, while the jury found that Tyg and Dermot O'Sullivan took their own lives. In early August, an inquest was held into this tragedy and the coroner had some harrowing words um, to say. Yeah, it really was quite um, cutting and, and hard-hitting, um, the, the summary from Dr Michael Kennedy. And what he said was, having heard all of this really harrowing evidence, was that he said at the end of an inquest, he would normally offer his condolences or his sympathies to the family. But he said in this particular case, 
the lights have gone off in Raheen. The entire O'Sullivan family are devastated because, of course, Anne O'Sullivan lost her battle to cancer in April of uh, 2021. So just six months after this poor woman had buried her husband and both of her sons, she died herself. So the entire O'Sullivan family was gone. There was no one for him to express his condolences with. And he used the phrase that having heard all of the evidence, this tragedy was simply beyond human comprehension. And the jury, having considered all of the the, the evidence and the, 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 the material that came up, issued one recommendation. And this recommendation was that in, in the case of third-party contacts to Gardaí about public safety, it, particularly against a background of firearms ownership, that the protocols involved in handling such cases be reviewed by Angarda Shiakona. And what the Gardaí have said is they are awaiting, now awaiting, the written um, verdict and recommendation from the jury, and they will consider at that point then what action, if any, is to follow. You've been listening to In Focus, the current affairs podcast from independent.ie. If any of the issues raised have affected you, please contact the Samaritans Helpline or visit our dedicated helplines page on independent.ie forward slash helplines. This podcast was produced by Mary Carroll and sound designed by Dara Kelly. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.